0: Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program.
1: Editor's Note Elizabeth Agnes Smith was born in 1884 and graduated from the House of Education 20 years later. She was active in the Alumni Association, and in 1911 she married the Reverend Richard Bevan Piper. In 1912, the couple had their first child, followed by a second in 1915. Elizabeth passed along her enthusiasm for Charlotte Mason's ideas to her husband, and in 1918, he was spearheading the use of the PNEU method in Sunday school. The story of his work is chronicled by Helen Wicks in an important Parents Review article. When the Great War broke out in 1914, every household in England was affected, and the young Piper family was no exception. Necessity taught them an important lesson about the Charlotte Mason method, a lesson that perhaps could not have been fully grasped at the House of Education. Elizabeth wrote about it in this 1917 article, which appeared in The Baby Number, an issue designed by Mason herself to offer guidance and principles for the early years. In 1944, England was again enduring the hardship of war, and Elizabeth's article returned to the Parents' Review with the note, Reprinted by Request, a paper written in the last war. Although Charlotte Mason handpicked each of the authors for the baby number, this particular article stood out in her memory. In 1919, she wrote to the House of Education alumnae, What charming baby papers have we had from some of you who are mothers, notably Mrs. Hughes-Jones and Mrs. Piper. Why did Mason highlight the contribution by Elizabeth? I think it is because this article is so much more than it seems. From an article entitled The Child in the Garden, we expect a routine list of do's and don'ts for children performing outdoor work. The reader is surprised to discover that something much deeper is going on here. In a world of Froebel's kindergartens and Montessori's children's houses, We might be persuaded that education itself is really just a special garden for children, but the urgency of the Great War taught Mrs. Piper something different. Our first father, Adam, worked in a garden. It was a garden designed for a man, a person. Piper learned that this is the garden her children need, too.
0: The Child in the Garden by E. A. Piper One thing, at any rate, we know with certainty, that no teaching, no information, becomes knowledge to any of us until the individual mind has acted upon it, translated, transformed, absorbed it, to reappear in forms of vitality. Oh, here are the children's gardens, said the mother, turning into a rather neglected looking corner of a well-kept kitchen garden but really they take so little interest in them I almost wish I had not given them plots of their own. Somehow they don't seem to be a bit keen on them. And indeed, as I looked at the rather untidy, dry little beds with a few patches of untended seeds coming up much too thick and nearly smothered with weeds, I felt what a pity it was that this was what stood to the children for a garden. I wonder how many gardens there are, children's gardens, neglected, untidy, and unloved, instead of being as they were meant to be. Objects of care and attention and sources of joy. Why is it so? Surely it is right for a child to have a garden to tend. Surely it would be a mistake for him not to have his own precious plot, where he may put in what he will, how he will. And yet, how many parents must know that their attempts to interest their children in gardening have ended in failure, and that the little plot that was planned and begun with enthusiasm is seldom voluntarily cared for? Here and there, it is true, one does come across children's gardens that are all one could desire, but far more often, I fear, this is not the case. Now, why is this? The answer to the problem has been solved for me by the conditions brought about by the war. In the June of 1915, our gardener left us, left us at a week's notice, with a large garden to which he had devoted the whole of his time, and found that little enough, we could not get labor of any kind, and we could not let the well-stocked garden become a wilderness. So that summer saw my husband and myself working hard, and hard, incessant work it is, too. And there is always more to do than one can possibly cope with. And, like a woman’s work, it is never done. Many readers of these pages know by experience, by this time, I have no doubt, what it means, and perhaps they will realize that, of all busy months in the year, June is one of the busiest. There were boxfuls of young plants to be put out, or left to die, marrows to put out, tomatoes to tie up and keep pruned, cucumbers to keep watered and aired in the frame, the vine to prune, dahlias and chrysanthemums to put out. Winter greens and lettuces to prick out, and all the time one was doing these numerous jobs, the weeds grew apace, and the hoe had to be in constant use. Every week, too, the lawns had to be mowed. A laborious task, as anyone who has done it week in, week out, through the length of a hot summer can testify. There were peaches to attend to, and gooseberries to thin out, and peas and beans to pick, and always the tomatoes and the vine, and the weeds crying for attention. And now I come to the object of these remarks. All that time John, aged two and a half, trotted about the garden, delighted to have so much of mummy and daddy, and absorbed in all we did. We had a few children's tools of a size suitable to his age and strength, but he would not look at them. Had the rake disappeared, John would be seen in his little butcher blue smock and knickers, sturdily trudging up the garden with it, and if he was left with it in proud possession, he would attack a bed, or he would drag the great spade and try to use it, or the heavy fork." If Daddy was using the hoe, John would fetch another one from the tool house and copy exactly the motion. He learned by degrees to discriminate between weeds and flowers and to notice the different kinds of vegetables. In July, he was quite useful in picking peas, having learned to hold the stalk with one hand and pull the pod with the other. Also, he learned to shell them, though this he did rather slowly, and found rather boring after the first five minutes. By August of that year, he named, to my amazement, peas, beans, turnips, potatoes, cabbages, and lettuces, in a neighboring cottage garden, and noticed onions, and asked what they were. He learned, too, to love the flowers, and to know their names watched the delicious, hairy, big poppy head split up the side, revealing the crumpled scarlet flower within, new by name, Barrage, London Pride, Phlox, Sweet William, and many others. If he did not know the name of any flower that attracted him, he always asked, and if he forgot, he asked again, and he was very particular to pronounce even the longest name correctly. In the autumn, the apples and plums had to be picked, and John learned to place them gently into the big trug baskets, so as not to bruise them. Then came the digging for potatoes, and he was much interested in the large families produced by each plant, and in all their various shapes and sizes, and he knew that Daddy was very careful not to let the prongs of his fork go through a potato." He also learned that seed potatoes are left out in the open and grow green, and that eating ones are put in the loft and covered up to keep them in the dark. The writer saw him often in his little rough blue Harris coat and leather leggings, spending the afternoon with Daddy in the garden, instead of going for a walk with Nanny. There was digging to be done and pruning, and joy of joys, an occasional and glorious bonfire. Then he would get a long stick and help to keep the heart of the bonfire hot and bright and learned where and how to poke it, and, by painful experience, not to go on the wrong side of the wind and have the smoke blown into his eyes. People said, How dangerous to let a child use a big garden fork, a rake, a long stick! But I think he learned to handle tools sensibly and wisely. Certainly he never came to grief. This summer, John is four and a half, and a man of wide and varied experience. He now instructs Michael, aged two and a half, where he may and where he may not tread, which plants are weeds and which are flowers. He can drop potatoes and use the hoe skillfully enough to hoe efficiently between the rows. He can pull out weeds by the root and fetch the barrow, a big gardener's one, and cart them off. He knows how to prepare the ground for sowing seeds, and he has learned how to dibble out small plants. He can give considerable help in mowing the lawn by pulling vigorously at my side and by emptying the box onto the grass heap and fitting it onto the machine again. Something of everything goes into my garden, which consists of various odd patches in odd corners. My garden has two sets of lettuces dibbled out by himself at two different periods and protected from the pigeons by a lavish display of wire netting. The plants have survived the transplanting and are doing well, though not quite ready yet, as he optimistically suggested for eating. My garden, in another place, grows two potato plants and a gooseberry bush, to which have been added two young plants of sprouting broccoli put in under supervision, but quite alone. My garden consisted in the unproductive winter months of about eight very leggy Brussels sprout plants, from which he would pick, every now and then, a handful of very frostbitten sprouts and give them to cook, and insist on rediscovering them at lunch in another form. He never ceases to wonder at the transformation from flower to fruit in gooseberries, apples, strawberries, plums, and quite realizes that such marvelous works can only come from God himself. Indeed, whatever is going on, John has a finger in the pie. His knowledge is knowledge. The individual mind has acted upon it, translated, transformed, absorbed it. Education is an atmosphere, a discipline, a life, and he was put in the environment of a garden with an atmosphere of keenness, and all the rest followed. So far it has not been a discipline to him, for he follows his own sweet will, and if asked to do something not altogether congenial, he says, but I have my own work to do, or I am very busy in my garden. It is certainly a life, for his active mind is feeding on living ideas and developing every day. Now, what does all this teach us? Surely that a child as much needs the real thing as grown-ups do. He will not be put off by a tiny patch of ground and baby tools when he knows that the real thing is a garden big enough to grow all sorts of things and that only big tools will do for it. He does not want to be artificially restricted to one spot in a garden. His mind is of too inquiring a nature for that. He loves to roam as he will, and make his own decisions as to where and what to grow. I can hear someone say that these ideas are all very well as far as the child is concerned. But what about the garden? Does it not suffer? We have not found it so. Indeed, I think that a child who follows his parents or the gardener about, watching the care they take, unconsciously assimilates a like care and reverence for plants and tools. He is much less likely to run over a bed of seedlings or bang apple blossom with a stick than a child who simply uses a garden of which he knows nothing and for which he has done nothing as a playground. And what a delight and privilege it is to have your child sharing your work and interests through all the seasons, in the garden, and watch his life, physical, moral, mental, spiritual, develop and blossom like the flowers. Is it not the root of all PNEU teaching that the personality of the child only wants the right environment and a little wise guidance and help, and the rest will follow? and also that he has a right to, and a necessity for, as much and as varied knowledge he is able to receive. I do believe that for children under six, a garden offers endless opportunities for training and developing on every side. Hand and eye, brain and soul, all are trained and strengthened, and under God's bright sun and soft rains the child grows sweet and fresh as any flower. The garden becomes the most heavenly place in the world, and my garden only exists when the child's need of expression becomes so poignant as to make it a sheer necessity to him.
1: If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes.
0: Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program.